ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It's Friday the 19th of January. I'm Samantha Donovan coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Today, ports stand still. Experts are warning of major disruptions if the industrial dispute between DP World and the Maritime Union isn't resolved soon. And from security guard to cricket sensation, the fairy tale debut of West Indies paceman Shamar Joseph. First today, the major supermarkets are to front a Queensland parliamentary inquiry into the price of groceries. The Premier, Stephen Miles, says he's concerned about the widening gap between what consumers are paying at the checkout and returns to farmers. But some competition experts say a state-based inquiry won't be enough to address the problem. Flint Duxfield reports. Independent grocer Debbie Smith says she knows all too well the problems facing the supermarket sector in Australia. The duopoly has been allowed over the last 20 years to completely monopolise the market. The former president of Master Grocers Australia, which represents independent supermarkets, she also owns two supermarkets in Toowoomba, west of Brisbane, where Debbie Smith says she's gradually seen large supermarkets saturate the grocery market. In Toowoomba in 2008, I bought two small supermarkets and there were only five major shopping centres and the town plan said that there was no provision for more, So, net, but now we have over 15. That doesn't mean that you have more competition. That means you have market saturation. Queensland Premier Stephen Miles says he's also been hearing concerning stories from farmers about the power of big supermarkets. I've described some of those stories as harrowing $10 watermelon that a farmer is selling by the side of the road because he can't afford to sell it for the $4 that he was offered by a supermarket. It's a seven kilogram watermelon and they're selling it for $5.50 a kilo in their stores. Today, he's announced a parliamentary inquiry he says will provide an opportunity for farmers and consumers to raise their concerns about supermarket behaviour. I think that kind of detailed scrutiny by the state's parliament is fitting for the kinds of concerns that we've heard from Queensland farmers and Queensland consumers. Woolworths and Coles collectively account for around 60% of the nation's grocery market, with the European giant Aldi having a 10% share and the IGA supermarkets making up around 7%. Queensland's inquiry is just the latest of many attempts to examine supermarket pricing and market share, including a Senate inquiry and a review of the Food and Grocery Code of Conduct to be completed by the former Labor Trade and Consumer Affairs Minister, Dr Craig Emerson. Despite welcoming the Queensland initiative, farmers remain sceptical about whether the state-based inquiry will make a difference. David Johinke is the president of the National Farmers Federation. This is a complex thing as far as a simple inquiry will not be the silver bullet that solves this. This is a long-term structural issue that we need to address and it needs to happen at all levels of government for their little parts to be played that accumulate so that we can get those efficiencies within the supply chain, make sure that people are making a fair profit, not a gouging exercise, and then that will be felt at the supermarket shelves, but it will also keep farmers 
doing what they do and keeping them farming. Earlier this week, the consumer watchdog, the ACCC, said it was carefully looking at a potential claim that some discounts by the supermarkets amounted to deceptive conduct. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has offered to give the ACCC extra powers to combat price gouging, acknowledging today that more sticks and less carrots may be what's required. That is precisely what we are considering doing and we'll we'll take all of the recommendations seriously. And I've said if the ACCC ask for more powers, then my government uh, will give it to them. Independent grocer Debbie Smith welcomes the idea of giving more power to the ACCC, saying the body needs to be able to step in to prevent the major supermarkets using a strategy of creeping acquisitions to gradually increase their market dominance. There's a fantastic food works in Fortitude Valley That's now a Woolworths store. Now, because it was only one independent store being replaced by a Woolworths store, then that didn't go to the ACCC. But it effectively meant that the people of of Fortitude Valley don't have ability to shop diversely because that happened. Both the major supermarkets have agreed to participate with the Queensland Inquiry, with Woolworths saying it welcomes the opportunity to explain how it's been balancing the needs of consumers and suppliers throughout this inflationary period. Flint Duxfield reporting. Today marks five years since Australian writer Yang Hanjun was detained in China. The Foreign Minister Penny Wong says the government is deeply troubled by the ongoing delays in resolving his case and the opposition shares her concerns. Australia's relationship with China has been improving over the last year or so, so should that give us hope Dr Yang will soon be released? This report from Alexandra Humphreys. Australian citizen Yang Hanjun was arrested in a Chinese airport in 2019, accused of spying, allegations he's always denied. He's languished in prison since, and despite a secret trial in 2021, a verdict still hasn't been handed down. Chong Yi Fung is an international studies professor at the University of Technology, Sydney, and a friend of the 58-year-old, whose condition, he says, is deteriorating. Terrible. The very poor health. Um, the torture and the uh, detention in harsh condition for five years has taken a very heavy toll on young health. Dr Jung is also suffering kidney disease. Professor Chong Yi Fung is urging the Australian government to ramp up pressure to bring his friend home for treatment. They should be uh, very clear and uh, determined to ask for or to demand for immediate release of Yang Hongjun because this is a, a outrageous fabricated case against Yang is is an outrageous political persecution. The case has now passed a grim milestone. It's been five years since the arrest. Australia's Foreign Minister Penny Wong has issued a statement saying Australia remains deeply troubled by the ongoing delays in the case and calling for basic standards of justice, procedural fairness and humane treatment for Dr Young. Shadow Foreign Affairs Minister Simon Birmingham says the situation is unacceptable. Well, it certainly does need to be uh, the highest of priorities for engagement between the Prime Minister, Foreign Minister and all other representatives of the Australian government with the Chinese government. 
Uh, it is unacceptable for an Australian citizen to be detained in these types of circumstances. Back in 2019, Australia's relationship with China was tense. It's since eased slightly, with some trade restrictions dropped and Prime Minister Anthony Albanese visiting last year. That visit came shortly after another Australian who'd been detained, journalist Chung Lei, was released after being imprisoned for three years. The you know, injustice is the same, except the internal mechanisms in China are different. Richard McGregor is a senior fellow with the Lowy Institute. He says only the Chinese know why Dr Young's case is taking so long. I think the Chinese have always distinguished this case from that of Chung Lei. I mean, from an Australian perspective, they're, they're both Australian citizens unjustly detained, uh, essentially on uh, political grounds. But uh, Yang Hanjun has a, you know, a, a different background in China. Uh, he used to work for the Chinese Ministry of State Security. Mr McGregor doesn't believe Dr Young's ill health will sway the Chinese government. And if a particular prisoner um, has been detained in China, uh, you know, for essentially internally uh, driven um, political motives, then I think they can be quite indifferent to the health of that prisoner no matter uh, how ill they get, uh, no matter what kind of medical treatment they need, um, and they can be quite indifferent to the ultimate fate of that prisoner. So um, at the moment, uh, it, it's hard to be overly optimistic. Senator Wong says the Australian government will continue advocating for Dr Young's release. Alexandra Humphreys. Some business experts are warning major supply disruptions are likely if the industrial dispute between port operator DP World and the Maritime Union isn't resolved soon. The Dubai-owned company is responsible for moving about 40% of container freight in Australia, including food, medicines and household goods. Economists are warning a protracted standoff at the ports of Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane and Fremantle could eventually push inflation higher. Our reporter David Taylor has more. Tens of thousands of containers with stuff Australians use every day to get by is sitting idle at ports around the country. RMIT business and law professor Anthony Forsyth says the dispute has the potential to become, in his words, dangerous in less than a fortnight. And I think it's only going to be a matter of a couple of weeks at most, I think, before DP World would inevitably make that application to the Fair Work Commission um, to have it step in to terminate the industrial action if it can show that it's causing danger to the community, threatening community welfare or threatening the national economy. The Maritime Union is asking for a 16% pay rise for more than 1,500 workers over two years, which it says is still below the rate paid by big arrival Patrick. It also wants an increase to back pay of 27% over two years. The problem is that the weeks-long industrial action has resulted in a two- to eight-week backlog in shipments and 48,000 shipping containers standing idle nationwide. Because a concern the union would have uh, and a step that we may see taken is for the um, company, DP World, to apply to the Fair Work Commission to have the industrial action terminated if it's able to show that it's causing disruption to 
supply chains and distribution of goods around the country. Australia's Fair Work Act gives the Workplace Relations Minister broad powers to suspend or terminate industrial action if it has a significant adverse impact on the economy. It was used when Qantas grounded its entire fleet in response to industrial action. DP World, which is responsible for about 40% of all container freight, warns the current backlog could take months to clear. The dispute is frustrating Workplace Relations Minister Tony Burke, who met with company representatives and the union yesterday. The concept that where every other business in Australia is expected to negotiate with their workforce, but this business wants to rely on ministerial intervention, is not a view that impresses me. Retailers claim they're already feeling economic pain from the dispute. The Retailers Association says its members have reported running out of stock and warn the prices of goods will ratchet up. Business groups have also weighed in. We'd hoped that the Minister sort of, OK, he might be angry about the dispute, we hope he can put that away and he can sort of help sit down and help resolve it. Part of the big problem we have is this drags on, it's just going to get worse and it's going to get worse into next year as well. That's the CEO of the Australian Industry Group, which represents employers across the country, Innes Willocks. He says there's too much at stake to let the dispute drag on. Tens of thousands of containers are lining up on our docks and every day, and that's growing every day. That's impacting the broader economy, food processing, the food we eat. You know, things like salts and um, sugars and all those sort of things, they're all, they're all being held up. And uh, um, then you look at construction, energy, retail, it's having broad impact across the economy. That's why we'd like it to be resolved. DP World says the company is committed to the Fair Work Commission process to find a fair and sustainable resolution that addresses the consequences of the industrial action and seeks to end it. David Taylor reporting. On ABC Radio across Australia, streaming online and on the ABC Listen app, this is The World Today. Thanks for your company. To the Middle East now and Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has rejected US calls to scale back the military offensive in Gaza and said he opposes the establishment of a Palestinian state once the conflict comes to an end. Observers say it's more evidence of a deepening rift between the two allies over the scope of the war and plans for the Palestinian territory. Nell Whitehead has more. Despite growing calls from the international community to scale back the violence, Benjamin Netanyahu vowed to press on with Israel's offensive in Gaza. And he said he's told the US he opposes the establishment of a Palestinian state when the fighting is over. In any future arrangement, Israel needs security control over all territory west of the Jordan. This is a necessary condition and if it collides with the idea of sovereignty... What can you do? I tell this truth to our American friends. He said Israel has destroyed around two-thirds of Hamas's fighting regiments in Gaza, but the war would continue until it has been defeated. 
We will not settle for less than complete victory. Complete victory requires the elimination of the terror leaders and the destruction of the military and governmental capabilities of Hamas. Complete victory requires the return of our hostages home. Three months into the conflict, the rift between Israel and its biggest ally is growing. The US has called on it to scale back the offensive and revive plans for a two-state solution, where a future Palestinian state would sit next to an Israeli one. State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller says only Palestinian statehood will guarantee Israeli security. There is no way to solve their long-term challenges to provide lasting security, and there is no way to solve the short-term challenges without the establishment of a Palestinian state. He said the US has secured commitments from Arab countries to bankroll Gaza's reconstruction, but only if Israel negotiates on a two-state solution. Without a tangible path to the establishment of a Palestinian state, there are no other partners in the region who are going to step forward and help with the reconstruction of Gaza. That's just the reality. Israel's assault on Gaza is one of the deadliest military campaigns in recent history, killing nearly 25,000 Palestinians, according to Gaza health authorities. It followed a cross-border attack by Hamas on October 7th, which killed 1,200 people and took another 250 hostage. Middle East analyst Dr. Roger Shanahan says the US is struggling to rein in its ally. Prime Minister Netanyahu has always been a political survivor and I think he believes that his only chance of survival politically in Israel is to double down on support for the right of Israeli politics and that includes saying no to a two-state solution. This really sets this current Israeli government against not only the region, but uh, its closest allies as well. That's fueled frustrations in some circles in Washington over the Biden administration's continued support for Israel. Some Democrats have been pushing to put conditions on aid to Israel. But Dr Shanahan says the US is in an uncomfortable position. They can't just pull the plug and they can't disengage entirely from the process because that really wouldn't help anybody at the same time knowing that it's an extremely uh, difficult issue that they're trying to deal with, with a Prime Minister who really they don't like and who doesn't like them. Hamas has continued to fight back across Gaza. It says it won't release any more hostages until there's a permanent ceasefire, something Israel and the US have ruled out. Now Whitehead reporting. The dire security situation in Ecuador has deteriorated further with the apparent assassination of the prosecutor investigating an armed gang storming of a TV studio last week. His killing is the latest violent episode in a part of South America once considered the continent's island of peace. This report from Jacqueline Breen. Multiple bullet holes in a car's driver's side window can be seen in this footage of the crime scene in the port city of Guayaquil. Local media reports say prosecutor Cesar Suarez was driving to a hearing when he was shot. The latest casualty in what's becoming all-out war between the authorities in Ecuador and gangs fighting for control of the drug trade. Attorney General Diana Salazar reacted with shock and said the crime wouldn't go unpunished. In the view of the murder of our colleague Cesar Suarez, I'm going to be emphatic. Organised crime groups, criminals, terrorists will not stop our commitment to Ecuadorian society. Cesar Suarez was investigating this shocking scene from last week. 
Masked men storming onto the set of a live TV broadcast, holding the presenter and station staff at gunpoint. Absolutely unprecedented. John Polga Hesimovich specialises in political science and Latin American studies at the US Naval Academy. He says the past two weeks of violence in Ecuador, sparked by the escape of a notorious gang leader from prison, have been unlike anything he's seen in the country before. Gunmen stormed a television studio. Prison guards were overpowered and taken hostage. There were riots across prisons. Uh, Gunmen stormed private businesses. They entered universities. Uh, and this is this is not commonplace, and and it marks a quite a difference with what gangs had been willing to do prior to this moment. The government has declared a 60-day state of emergency, which includes a nighttime curfew. And video published overnight shows soldiers and police retaking the prison complex where the gang leader known as Fito escaped earlier this month. The prison's considered the main base for the gangs operating in Guayaquil, where drugs are moved out of the port. John Polga Hesimovich says a perfect storm of factors have set the stage for what's playing out in Ecuador at the moment. First of all, the Colombian peace agreement and demobilization of FARC guerrilla fighters in 2017 was really important for Colombia. But this left lucrative cocaine trafficking routes through Ecuador up for grabs. Uh, This attracted foreign criminal groups that co-opted local gangs. Secondly, uh, these gangs have fragmented since 2020, setting the stage for violent turf wars, uh, failure of policies of successive governments dating back to the mid-2010s, and then the governments allowing corruption to fester. This morning, police announced the arrest of two suspects in the murder of Prosecutor Cesar Suarez and the seizure of guns. Jacqueline Brain reporting. Well, there's a new star in international test cricket and his name is Shamar Joseph. Last year, the young West Indian was a security guard. This week, he dismissed one of the best batsmen in the world with his first ball at the Adelaide Test against Australia. And the 24-year-old prodigy from a remote village in Guyana says he now wants to play cricket for the rest of his life. This report from Rachel Hayter. Here he comes, Shamar Joseph, his first ball in Test cricket to Steve Smith. It's a nick! He's got a wicket! In his Test cricket debut at the Adelaide Oval, on his very first ball, 24-year-old West Indies player Shamar Joseph dismissed one of the best Test batsmen in the world, Australia's Steve Smith. Getting one of my favourite batsmen, Steve Smith is my favourite batsman, so getting him for a wicket, that's amazing for me. I think that's the best half of my career and I want to continue doing well. And the wickets kept coming. Labashain is on the full shot, gets it to deep fine leg, it's in the air, he's out! The catch has been taken by Moti. A good catch, Shamar has two! He finished the innings with five wickets after hitting 36 runs. The highest ever score at number 11 by a West Indian debutante. You know, we often speak of fairy tales uh, in sport. But this is the ultimate fairy tale. Cricket writer and broadcaster Bharat Sundaraisen tells us just where Shamar Joseph hails from. He comes from this little town called Barakara, a little village called Barakara. Uh, it's on the other end of the Kanji River in Guyana. So from Georgetown, uh, it would take you two days by, by boat to get to that village. And this young kid grows up playing 
uh, loving cricket, but uh, the only cricket he's ever played was with the tape ball or any fruit he could find uh, in the village, which is round in shape. Mangoes, guavas, you name it. After becoming a father, he moved to the biggest nearby town called New Amsterdam to earn a living for his young family. Becomes a security guard, doesn't work out. Uh, tries construction, doesn't work out. And on the sidelines, just plays some cricket on the side and he gets spotted and all this is happening in the space of the last 14 months uh, and here he is making his test debut at the Adelaide Oval. I mean this is uh, not even a dream come true because I don't think anyone including him could have dreamt of this uh, 12 months ago. Now Joseph is enjoying his new occupation. Security guard is not easy work. Working 12 hours, 7 to 7 and sometimes do double shift. I mean, cricket isn't easy also, but this is what I love and this is what I want to continue doing for the rest of my life. Bharat Sundarayson spent some time with Shamar Joseph before yesterday's match, shopping for an arm guard and a tiny cricket bat for Joseph's two-year-old son. We went to one of those sports stores. We get on an escalator and he tells me, brother, four years ago, I didn't know what this was because in that village, Barakara, they didn't even have internet connection till 2018. No touchscreen phones. So... Uh, it really is the back of beyond. Shamar Joseph's cousin, Orlando Tanner, watched Shamar grow up obsessed with cricket. The village Barakaro, all we know about up there in terms of sport is cricket and domino. Anthony D'Andrade played cricket with Shamar in New Amsterdam. We knew his dream, how big his dream was when he started playing cricket and, and to see it actually come to pass um, in just a short space of time, just over... Um, 11 months ago, he wasn't even playing for us grass cricket. And now he's actually playing test cricket, which is the highest level of cricket. From a remote village in Guyana to the Adelaide Oval, Shamar Joseph has raw talent and the drive to go with it. We come out here to fight. We come out here to play brave cricket. Not, we doesn't travel from Guyana, St. Kitts and all over the world just to come and play jockey cricket. We come to fight. The West Indies' Shamar Joseph, ending that report from Rachel Hayter. And that's The World Today for this Friday. Thanks for your company. I'm Samantha Donovan.